acute male genital urinary disorders. So the ones I want to talk about briefly here are epididymitis, phimosis, priapism, and torsion testicle. Epididymitis is an inflammation or an infection of, a, of the epididymis, often caused by an infection. For urinary tract infections, it could be E. coli. Um, often in older kids, it could be from sexually transmitted infections such as chlamydia, gonorrhea. Some of our inflammatory illnesses such as HSP, Kawasaki's, you can also see it in trauma, and it could even be medication-induced with amiodarone. Your presentation, it's a, usually a unilateral scrotal pain with edema. Uh, they may have a discharge. They may not, depending on the infection. Um, your differential diagnosis will include torsion testicle. Uh, your diagnosis, uh, diagnostic features would be getting a good history as to when it started, how, how long it's been going on. Um, you can also get an ultrasound. The nice thing about ultrasound, it'll give us a good evaluation of the structural um, integrity of the testicle as well as uh, blood flow to help rule in or rule out torsion testicle. Your treatment is going to be rest, scrotal support, and antibiotics depending on the cause. Now, phimosis is the inability to retract the foreskin over the head of the penis. And oftentimes, we'll get kids that'll come in that have a very tight uh, foreskin. And then when it's retracted for, for cleaning, there's the inability to retract it back. And this is a, a condition that we worry about the most is paraphimosis, which is a true urological emergency in which um, essentially the glans penis is being strangulated by the foreskin. Um, in which, you know, a, a urologist would have to go in and treat that. With phimosis, because it's a tight retraction, um, often what we could do is offer a, a topical steroid cream, such as bet, uh, betamethasone, to help treat it. And then if it's, if it's uh, not treated with topical medications, then they would go in for circumcision. Priapism is a pathological condition of a sustained erection that is often painful. It's usually unassociated, well, it is unassociated with sexual excitation. Um, in the pediatric population, we see this um, mainly with our ch children with sickle cell disease. And what happens is because they have the sickling cells, there's a vasal occlusion in the, in the, in the penis that causes this uh, prolonged erection. For your diagnostic studies, you'll do a CBC. Uh, often these kids may require a needle decompression, um, especially if it's lasting for more than four hours. And then again, you can provide supportive care with analgesics. Torsion testicle is essentially a twisting of the testicle involving the spermatic cord, resulting in occlusion of the testicular blood flow. This is a true surgical emergency, which will require surgery generally within the first four to six hours from the onset, from the onset of symptoms. This is a bell clapper deformity. Essentially, the bell clapper deformity um, is where the testicle can twist. Generally, the testicles shouldn't be able to twist into this fashion normally, and with this type of deformity, they would go in and correct it surgically. On presentation, there's usually acute onset of severe unilateral testicular pain, so this should all be included in part of your history. Generally, there's swelling to the scrotum, um, also pain to the lower abdomen. There could be some nausea, vomiting, and dysuria, and there's generally an absence of the cremasteric reflex, which is where you rub the inner thigh and on the unilateral side, there should be a contraction of the, of the scrotum, and they'll have an absence of that when they have these types of testicular torsions. Your differentials will include trauma, epididymitis, orchiitis, hernias. Your diagnostics will include a good history 
and you want to know the onset of pain or your onset of symptoms because that will determine whether they can make it to the operating room to help salvage and correct um, the torsion testicle. Again, if you have time, you can do a Doppler ultrasound to, to evaluate blood flow to the testicle and to evaluate the venous congestion within the testicle itself. Next, we'll move on to uh, continuous renal. Uh, we'll talk about hemodialysis and CRRT. Continuous renal replacement therapy can include hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis, acute intermittent hemodialysis, uh, continuous hemofiltration, which has a variety of different settings, um, such as your scuff, which is your slow continuous ultrafiltration. It can be CVVH, which is your continuous venous hemo hemofiltration. It could also be your continuous venous, venovenous hemodialysis or your continuous arterial venous hemofiltration. So there's a wide variety of different therapies you can do to support renal replacement therapy to help remove impurities in the blood, to help remo remove excess fluid buildup from uh, renal insufficiency or renal uh, failure. So hemodialysis um, usually involves blood products and dialysis and the fluids interact. So essentially you have a filter that's put into place. The blood flows on one side in one direction, diacylates on the opposite side of the membrane, moving in the opposite direction. And through a process of diffusion, um, this will maximize the clearance of fluids and electrolytes across that membrane. Um, the tricky part, typically these children um, require a very large, stiff v um, hemodialysis catheter, which is the smallest one they make is a 7 French. Uh, it's a double lumen catheter. And this often limits the size of the patient that we can perform these types of therapies on. So usually the children have to be a little bit larger than 10 kilos, and they have to be able to tolerate the changes in blood pressure, especially when we're discontinuing therapy and removing fluid from the circuit, um, which can cause some hypotension or hemodynamic instability. Peritoneal dialysis is another alternative that we can use to help remove uh, fluid and um, solutes. Um, some of the advantages is that it's easy to set up. Um, we can easily use this on infants and smaller children. Um, typically, patients are generally hemodynamically stable. There's no anticoagulation involved. Um, it can be done at the bedside. Um, they have machines now that can help in that process. Um, they can treat severe hypothermia or hypothermia um, because you can regulate the fluid temperature. Some of the disadvantages is that you're, it has an unreliable ultrafiltration. So essentially, you can give the diacylate into the abdomen and not necessarily get it all back out or maybe not get any of it back out. It's a slow, it's a very slow fluid and solute removal. So it's generally good for patients that don't require huge fluid corrections or electrolyte corrections. Um, the catheters can become obstructed because of the, of the fluid and, and the solution, that diacylate solutions. Um, can cause respiratory compromise. So if you're putting a large volume of uh, peritoneal dialysis fluid into the abdomen, that can push up on the diaphragm, making it more difficult for the child to breathe. You can also have issues with hyperglycemia, peritonitis, um, but it's not, and it's not very good for removing or decreasing your ammonia levels or, or when you have patients that need to be dialyzed for intoxications or um, poisonings. Your intermittent hemodialysis, um, some of the advantages are is that it helps maximize clearance of your um, modalities, best therapy for severe hyperkalemia. It's limited anticoagulation time and it's bedside vascular access, which is awesome. Some of the disadvantages is the patients can become hemodynamically unstable. They can become high, they can develop hypoxemia. You can have rapid fluid and electrolyte shifts, um, uh, complex 
equipment for the bedside nurses to um, operate does require sometimes specialized personnel. And it's very difficult for the small offenses I mentioned earlier because of the catheter size and sometimes the instability with blood pressure with volume changes. Uh, continuous hemofiltration can easily be, easily be set up in the PICU, um, can provide a, a rapid electrolyte correction, excellent solute clearance, rapid acid-base correction, controllable fluid balance, tolerated well in patients, especially those that are hemodynamically um, unstable, uh, early use, uh, of TPN, bedside vascular access routine. Um, some of the disadvantages is it does require systemic anticoagulation. Um, and often these patients require a sodium citrate um, to be given so to prevent the blood from clotting while the dialysis is occurring. The patient will receive um, a calcium infusion to help balance out or counteract the citrate. But it does require close monitoring of your calcium chloride from the patient side as well as the equipment side um, especially when we're trying to prevent citrate lock. Um, you can have frequent filtering or clotting of the circuit, and you can have vascular access issues, especially for those smaller patients. So some of your indications would include um, anuria or oliguria, um, if you have an elevated ammonia level, hyperkalemia for severe acidosis, pulmonary edema, uremic complications, severe electrolyte abnormalities, drug overdoses, or rhabdomyolysis. Now moving on to renal tubular acidosis, um, the pathology here is you have a primary, um, the renal tubulars are primarily responsible for homeostasis of acid-base balance. In renal tubular acidosis, one of three processes occur. You can have a decrease in acid excretion. You can have a failure of bicarb reabsorption um, with a decrease ammonium absorption. And then uh, the fourth cause, or type four, could be your aldosterone deficiency or impairment, resulting in a reduced potassium excretion, causing hyperkalemia along with acidosis. So hypokalemic distal type one um, is uh, seen in patients with uh, hypothyroidism or uh, primary parahypothyroidism, genetic disorders. Um, you can have a proximal type two, which is the most common form, it's a generalized proximal tubular dysfunction. Um, you've seen it in uh, Fanconi syndrome, renal immaturity, hereditary disorders, malignancies, nephrotic syndrome, and chronic renal vein thrombosis. Your type 4, you could see with uh, patients with uh, deficiencies to aldosterone, as such as patients with Addison's disease, diabetic neuropathies, um, obstructive bureaupathies. You can also see it with some medications such as captopril and potassium-sparing diuretics. The presentation often is asymptomatic, but they can have a polyuria, polydipsia. They could savor um, food preferences, hypokalemia. Um, they can have metabolic acidosis, of course, um, abnormal eye exams, uh, hepatospinomegaly. With distal type 1, you can have a sensorineural hearing loss, uh, failure to thrive, short stature, anorexia. With proximal type 2, you can have failure to thrive also. Again, with some of the very similar symptoms, and with type 4, you can have hypertension. Your differential diagnoses will include GI electrolyte losses, vomiting and diarrhea, or medications. You can also have extrarenal processes that can cause this metabolic alkal acidosis, excuse me, with tube drainage or interstitial or pancreatic secretions or bile. Um, early kidney insufficiency, um, diabetic ketoacidosis, um, 
But again, with a diabetic ketoacidosis, you're going to be checking for um, your anion gap to see if it's elevated or not. And typically with renotubular acidosis, you do not have an elevated gap acidosis. Your plan is to um, treat the metabolic acidosis with a normal gap. You're going to look at your serum or urine electrolytes. You're going to calculate your, your fractional excretion of bicarb. Uh, you're going to check your urine, glucose, protein, and calcium. You may do a 24-hour urine. Uh, imaging studies will, you know, for long-term chronic patients, you look at long bone or wrist films, ultrasounds of the kidneys, and look at genetic or chromosomal evaluations. Your plan will include to replace with bicarb, slow rehydration and electrolyte replacement, alkali therapy to help alkalinize the urine, hydrochlorothiazide or the addition of potassium sparing diuretics such as aldactone, uh, potassium supplements, dietary restrictions of both sodium and potassium for the type 4 type patients, and vitamin D and phosphate uh, replacement. Your consultations will include nephrology, genetics, endocrinology, your dietitian, and developmental specialists. With discharge, uh, disposition and discharge planning, you want to make sure the caregiver is well-educated for the side effects of bicarbonate therapy, um, seeking medical attention for vomiting and diarrhea, um, regular follow-up with your, your, for the evaluation of the electrolytes, growth and development evaluations with the primary care provider. Key points is consider renotubular acidosis in patients with metabolic acidosis and a normal gap in the absence of GI losses. Obtain your serum bicarb and urine pH. For type 1, your pH will be less than 5. For type 2, the pH will rise above 7.5 with a fractional excretion of bicarb greater than 15% during the administration of bicarb. And in your um, type 4, your potassium is elevated. Your urine pH is usually less than 5.5.